Adam has asked that we mark number 226, and so please uh, let each of us do that and make note of that, and we'll, of course, have the opportunity to hymn that at the proper time in our service this evening. On this occasion, as we come uh, on this Sunday evening service, it certainly would be entirely appropriate to issue, again, another word of appreciation uh, to Brother Trail and also to Brother Adam for delivering of the lessons last, last Sunday evening. It's always, again, a bountiful matter, and as often as we mention it, I hope it never becomes old because it is a real blessing that the Pippin congregation enjoys to have not only a wealth of men with talents like that, but also who are eager and willing to use them at the appropriate times, and certainly we're exceedingly thankful. And indeed, as you give thought to those lessons tonight, we come to the 11th and final lesson in this series of lessons dealing with the translations of, of the Scriptures. Throughout the course of these studies, as we've given some thought to the various translations of the Bible, here is an exceedingly minimal and somewhat broad consideration of some of what we have learned. Why that is off to the right, I really do not know. Uh, computers never cease to be amazing at times as to how things can happen with seemingly no, no explanation easy at hand. I think it, perhaps it's still readable, so maybe we'll continue on with it at least like that. As you'll notice along some of those things, we did glean the appreciation, first and foremost, as to how vital a translation is for you and for me who are not able to read the original autographs in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and how thankful we can be for a translation to which we can read and learn what is the Word of God, apply it to our life, and thus stand justified and whole in His sight. Among some of those things, we notice the original documents and how that they were inspired of the Holy Spirit and how that in the centuries that followed there were individuals and sometimes committees of individuals who made various translations into a number of languages including English. And there near the bottom, we did focus a bit more thoroughly on the English translations, striving from the days of Wycliffe onward to appreciate what has brought us to some of these translations with which you and I are the most familiar, from the King James translation to the American Standard and even to a whole host of others as well. And there at the bottom, tonight we will look at but two more translations and then try to review or at least summarize the entirety of our series. As we do that tonight, the translation to which we will come to first is this new King James translation we had in fact given a fair amount of attention to the King James Version in, in an earlier lesson and it seems only fitting tonight to at least pick up and discuss some of the features of the New King James Version. And there again at the top I've listed a historical note or two with respect to it and then some features of it that might be of interest to you and me this evening. First of all, as we are aware of the 1611 King James Version and the degree of popularity it had gained over the centuries, and the thoroughness and the frequency with which it had become used, it was perhaps only reasonable that the time would come that an, a, re a revision of it would be attempted. And so it was in 1975 that a revision of it was undertaken by a, a rather extensive committee. And in fact, even that revision was updated in 1984, which would be the date just off to the right that's not easily visible at all. As you take note then of that 1975 and the 1984 update to that, it's certainly interesting to note one of the central goals that that committee attempted to adhere to. It was their strong desire to maintain the same textual basis as the King James translation 
and thus to lean very heavily upon the Textus Receptus that we discussed earlier. It is interesting that in their attempt to remain loyal to that Textus Receptus, there are passages in which they were far more successful at that than others. In fact, there are a number of places in which the New King James seems to differ exceedingly from that particular Textus Receptus, and in fact the rendering that goes along with the King James translation. But because at least of that goal, it's fair to note that a number of those statements that you and I made about the King James translation would at least in part apply to the New King James Version as well. And thus that leads us to note just a few of these thoughts. The New King James translation, as we've attempted to note, is no perfect translation. It too has factors or things about it that might be worthy of note. And here's just a very small sampling of some of what might be mentioned. In John 8.35, for instance, the New King James has the phrase, a son, present, when in fact the Greek directly has it as the son. And so on that occasion we notice in which a reference was made to the Son of God Himself, there is the replacement of the definite article with, with a, a rather indefinite one, and that certainly was not a, a particularly pleasing translation. In Matthew 5, verse 32, you'll notice yet another instance where this time a rather significant change for another particular reason was made. It was here the Savior was discussing the matter of fornication and its place in obtaining a proper and rightful divorce in the eyes of God. But you'll notice that the New King James doesn't use the word fornication. It's sexual immorality, which frankly is a bit broader. Whereas fornication is very definite, and it has behind it a very clearly understood matter, you'll note that sexual immorality again is a bit broader, and thus it would seem from that confusion could in fact result and reign supreme. Maybe another instance in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. On that occasion, as it made reference to the Christ, the text reads they were worshiping Him, but the New King James reads that they were merely kneeling before Him. Again, a bit of a distinction and a bit of a change. All the while, it might be fair to at least make some additional statements. The New King James Version did, of course, attempt to update some of the terms that were used because 1611 was so far in the past that some words had changed their meanings, had changed the particular means in which they were presented or understood. There are times when it might be debatable as to how successful they were at finding the right word to at least update. There are still rather unusual words to be found even in the New King James translation. But it might be also interesting to note, aside from all of that, it is true that the richness of the poetic expression is not there in the New King James translation. Finally, as you give thought to the final statement, it's a pretty good translation. One, perhaps, that one could learn the great features of the nature of God, the propriety of worship, the aspects, in fact, that go along with the church and its organization. The plan of salvation all do seem to be crystal clear in the New King James translation. It is, in fact, in light of all of that, that we would be able to add that to our list of considerations of these translations and give some thought to it. And as we summarize in a few moments, we thus will include it in its proper placement. It is at this point, I thought, that a particular statement might be in order about a translation that we gave some consideration to a few weeks ago, prompted by some comments that were asked of me 
In fact, Brother Trail brought some things to my attention, and I've had the opportunity to do a bit more study with respect to the New American Standard Bible. And I thought it only fair to make some of these comments to help us better appreciate its placement. It was on that occasion that some of the things that were said were really tending more toward a disfavorable regard concerning it than, than perhaps would be the right conclusion to reach. In fact, some of those things that could be stated about it, again, it isn't a perfect translation, but those matters about it that we drew to such high consideration would not place it, for instance, in the category of being completely disfavored. And I've tried to state that like this. You'll notice that that third comment, in terms of the issues that it has, I'm not aware with additional study of any of the ways that it, for instance, mistreats the deity of Jesus or mistreats anything about the worship of the church or other matters like it. And so with that said, some of the things about it would not be that much different than some of the other translations that we've studied in a good way. For that reason, I've stated at the bottom, this one does stand in a very favorable place in terms of the way in which it deals with many issues and in the way that it gives consideration to some of the features about the nature of being superior to some of the other translations, in fact, that we have studied in some detail. But with the American Standard Version and this new American Standard, also to be mentioned would come the English Revised Version, the ESV is sometimes the way that it's actually called the English Standard Version. I wrote it there as the English Revised Version. But some of its comments bring us to realize it is a rather recent translation. In fact, 2001 was when this particular translation was put forth, only 10 years ago now. Among some of its features, you'll notice it was intended as an extensive revision of the Revised Standard Version. And in our previous studies, we had drawn a number of rather disfavorable statements about the, about the RSV. But this one, in terms of its intended revision, we certainly should give a good appreciation to the degree in which it proceeded. The problems that the Revised Standard Version had, thankfully, in many ways, were improved upon. That is to say, corrected by the translators in the ESV. In fact, if we had to make one particular statement about the ESV, it likely would be this. Among all the problems that the RSV set forth and the problems that it had, quite often the thing that needed it in order to fix it was just a more literal translation. Just to stick closer to what the original rendering was in the Greek or Hebrew as the case may be. And the, and the ESV attempted, in fact, to do that. If you make a comparison between the ESV and RSV, it's interesting that in almost every instance, what changes were made was a very much deliberate attempt to be more literal as it related to the original text. And thus, that's certainly an applaudable thing. We would certainly say it's not a perfect translation, for here are some issues that one might note. It tends to add words on occasion. And, of course, the thrust of that edition was an attempt to interpret. And it's not our desire to have the, the translators interpret for us. We simply want them to present the Word of God. Two instances in 1 Timothy 3.10, they added the word prove. As it related to the qualifications of a deacon, there were certain things that text says that were to be proven 
But that word prove is not in the original text at all. Another instance from 2 Corinthians 4.3, the addition of the word only. In some instances, the addition of a word can change the thrust or the meaning of a given verse or passage. One thus would not always be happy with the addition of words when it was not there in the original autographs themselves. At times in the ESV, a given word, the same phrase or the same word is translated in a myriad of different ways depending on the text. For example, I've listed the word anthropos. The ESV uses no less than the following number of differing ways that that's presented. People, person, one, human being, human, human authority, all of them at various places translate the one and same Greek word. Again, one would have to ask about the thrust of the context and the particular message that's being given with statements like that. But at least one could certainly say that at times that same word that's translated in, diff in differing ways can almost be confusing. Because when you're comparing given texts and that same word appears but it's translated different ways, then at least if one's doing word studies on the various occurrences, that would be a misleading statistic or at least a misleading concept. I think it's only fair to say that the ESV, as far as I know, doesn't tamper with a plan of salvation, nor does it tamper with, for instance, the worship of the church or even the deity of Christ. But at least one would have to know that its imperfections might well include those things we've listed. At this point, in light of some of these things, we have looked at a large number of these translations and attempted to at least make some brief comments about them. Maybe a summary would be in order. And I've tried to prepare an exceedingly brief summary. Here it is in tabular form, at least a compilation of what we have seen on the various weeks of our study. As you'll notice on the left is the abbreviation that we've used for the particular translation that we were considering. Some of those might come back to you, the Amplified Bible, the Contemporary English Version, the ESV, and the others that are listed. In this particular format, I have used the last two columns to remind us of the translation philosophy that was used for that particular translation. And we did learn, haven't we, that those that make use of a paraphrase, for example, or those that are based on a thought-for-thought -thought presentation, or those that are based on this dynamic equivalence concept, all would be those we should rather quickly call into question. And so as you look down the list... On the right-hand side, the very last column is simply a, a very brief reminder of some of the notes that we saw concerning them. You'll notice on that particular slide that the thought-for-thought thought ones that seem to be very prevalent on that slide and those that involve an addition or amplification where the authors actually put in additional words attempting to explain or at least in their mind interpret, those we would again wish to call rather directly into question. Many times the preface to these particular translations illustrates that point very well where they admit or at least acknowledge that that's the approach that were used in them. You'll notice the message that we made use of as well as the New Living Translation over to the right with regard to that one. We might remember that that one is really the successor and the more popular of it and the Living, the living Bible paraphrase. And we learned again that those paraphrase concepts would not serve us well 
as we wish to know what was the original delivered Word of God. The NIV, the one at the bottom, we noticed on occasion its problems seem rather large. And so, as we noted, the way in which, though it's by far today the most popular English version of the Bible, it nonetheless would be those for which we should really study with great care if we choose to, to use that NIV. Beyond that listing of six, we noticed another listing. It also uses some additional ones that we've considered in our study. Starting with the Good News Bible that we had noted was based on that dynamic equivalence principle where the authors were seen freely to interject what their interpretation was. Again, the problems would be easily appreciated. The Cotton Patch Version, the one that occurs second on that list, was the one that we almost used to begin our series. And oh, what problems that particular translation had. I think a number even expressed that you'd almost like to have one just to see what some of its readings did look like in its thoroughness. Again, it is a very free translation due to one man. And he, of course, had a desire that was not merely to present the unadulterated Word of God, but rather to present something that was more than anything, his perception on that with a particular goal in mind. The New English Bible, the RSV, and the others... We noted particularly that HCSB had a very unique desire in terms of what its authors intended. Its particular translation philosophy is what today at least is called optimal equivalence. That again is not merely a word-for-word -word idea. It is a desire to somehow marry that thought with the issue of a thought-for-thought -thought consideration. The language they've chosen to use is that of optimal equivalence. Many omissions take place, many things not found in it that might cause us to wonder about, in fact, the free usage of it. It might be at this point fair to say that one of the things we've learned is that a good word of wisdom for careful study might be to use more than one translation. Maybe to use a King James along with something else, or at least a couple of translations and read what the correspondences might be to see what the particular words might be that were chosen and utilized. As we come to this third page, here's some more that we've looked at over the course of this series. Some of these, we'll remember, were really rather Catholic-oriented in the sense that it was a desire to almost uphold that line of reasoning and that line of consideration. Others, such as that very last one, clearly again simply a paraphrase of what was the original given Word of God. As we've looked at all of these, we might notice again that many other translations now also are in existence. Thankfully, most of them are byproducts of one or more of these. But if you've noticed some of the websites recently from some of the publishing houses, there are other so-called Bibles in the works. New ones are yet to come our way in the next few years with various and sundry thoughts and goals and motives and ideas. As we look at them, we at least have formed some premises whereby we can look upon them and appreciate what might be some good ways to determine if they are in fact reliable or trustworthy or not. We've listed thus about half a dozen on which we could feel free to use them for good Bible study or recommend them to others, for perhaps to use them along with others in our, in our translation studies, and all the while to feel a good way about the nature of the Word of God that has been given to us. Trail read for us earlier tonight from John 6, verse 63. 
in which Jesus there said, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The life-giving Word of God. Throughout this series, in almost all the instances I've chosen a particular passage to use as the reading for that sermon that was based on some emphasis of importance related to the Word of God. One of the texts we used was Psalm 119, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Another was 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Another was 1 Thessalonians 2.13, in which Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, said, For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually also worketh, in you that believe. That's just a sampling of some of the ones we selected. Maybe we shouldn't forget that another was this one. Matthew 4.10 still says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It is to be noted then how special the Bible really is. It is not one book among many. It is the only book of its kind. Although today you and I often encounter individuals and writings and articles that will lift high other books that often are laid upon comparable basis to it, may we understand that those are the delusions of men. They may well have been written with the best of intentions, but they're not inspired like the Bible. For indeed, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. As men and women of God, those capable of reading and understanding a non-adulterated scriptures, we can appreciate then with the mentality given to us the nature of what is the revelation of truth. It is with those thoughts in mind, perhaps we can summarize or conclude not only the lesson this evening, but also our series of studies on these translations of the Word of God. We have been reminded of how valuable the translations are. We can be thankful for them. For those especially that have the element of goodness behind them in terms of not tampering with at least the things that would doom one's soul, we can appreciate then having access to them and to do so at a relatively low cost. This day and time, you can often buy software packages that have many of those translations all in one bundle for a relatively low cost. If you have interest in some of those translations or some of the Greek varieties, for example, I'd be happy to share information about where some of those things can be purchased. We've also noted how that the words of God stand so pristinely beautiful. After all, the destiny is heaven. That's where we'd like to be. That's where we want to go. And thankfully, this is the roadmap. When you and I take trips to various places, we may pull up MapQuest on the computer, or we may simply pull out an old-time written map. But either way, we're looking for the proper roadmap in the proper place to lead us to a given destination. We have that in our hands. This is the message that will lead us to heaven. If we veer from it, it isn't the Bible's fault. If we, in fact, veer off the path and choose some other way, it isn't God's fault. It certainly isn't the Holy Spirit's fault, for He gave us this one. And it isn't the Son's fault. 
for he did what was necessary in execution of the plan of God at Calvary. It might be tonight that there's someone in the audience who at this point stands distant from the loving arms of your Heavenly Father. Though God, like that father and the prodigal son, waits eagerly and earnestly for you to make the decision to come back to Him, at this point He is still waiting. Though at this point you perhaps at once have been in the fold like that son was, but he took his things and ran. You've took the blessings that God gave you, but you have long since left home. Why not come back tonight to your first love? Why not? <clears throat> Is there any good reason it might be offered? I don't think so. For in fact, all of eternity is here before us. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a morrow may bring forth. There ain't no one of us that knows what tomorrow morning will be like or even if it will come. There ain't no one of us that knows about the midnight hour tonight, even if it shall in fact come our way. Time is a precious commodity. No wonder we're admonished in Ephesians 5, verses 16 and following, to spend it circumspectly, not wastefully, not in fact in ways that bring out of it less than the fruitfulness and the productivity that God would wish it to employ, but rather always redeeming the time. Are you redeeming the time in your life tonight? To redeem means to in fact use properly, wisely, and make the most of if we could assist you tonight in your obedience to the gospel, it might well be that you've never been baptized. You know what the plan of salvation is. You know the church the Lord purchased. You know of what is required, but to this point you have not done so. The baptismal waters behind me are ready and warm. An audience here is more than excited to rejoice with you. But without question, the most important thing of all, you can be right with God. Beyond all of that, if we can pray for one who's gone astray, just like a sheep sometimes will, you need to come back home. In Acts the 8th chapter, Simon, in fact, did that very thing when he went astray. Peter prayed on his behalf, and we can pray on your behalf tonight. If we can assist you in either of these ways, why not let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing the chosen hymn.